0: This week, we're in LA with stunt performer and comedian Stevo.
1: I wanted to document as much crazy, entertaining stuff as I could.
0: First, breaking onto the scene in skateboarding magazines, Stevo's insane stunts led him to MTV's Jackass.
1: The very Next day, after it aired, my life was totally different.
0: We sat down in his Hollywood Hills home to talk about his death-defying career.
1: I was under the impression that my job that day was to get bitten by an alligator.
0: He also opens up about his mother's struggle with alcoholism. How often would she drink to the point of being unable to function?
1: She would stay drunk for, for days or even weeks on end
0: and his own dark battle with addiction.
1: I leaned over to do another line of cocaine, and I remember thinking, like, I don't care if I die.
0: All that's coming up next, right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. So, comedy, uh, what excited you in the first place about going on stage without having to do a stunt to make people laugh?
1: Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. Oh, really? It wasn't my idea to try comedy the first time. I was asked to do it by somebody who uh, wanted me to do a stunt. And I said, yeah, sure. And I showed up uh, at the comedy club with no plan at all. And looking around, it just occurred to me that uh, I couldn't do anything crazier than actually get on that stage and try to make people laugh like doing stand-up.
0: How did it feel when you went on stage for that first time?
1: The first time it was just shocking to me how uh, welcomed I was. People were excited to see me. um, They were interested in what I had to say. The crowd was was rooting for me. I felt a genuine sense that the crowd was rooting for me to do well and they just want to have a good time. So before uh, I left the comedy club that night, I scheduled
0: my return. Oh, did you?
1: I did. And before I came back, I actually like, wrote out an act, you know, like uh, with jokes and, uh, you know, did like 10 minutes when I came back and filmed it, and I was pretty happy with it. God, this is like the most frustrating thing, and, and if, I, if I have a regret, this would be it. Was that I wrote this act and, and it went reasonably well, and then and I filmed doing it, and having done that, I determined that I needed to, to retire that material. For some reason in my mind, I needed to do something different every time I went on that stage. Whereas uh-huh. if I would have uh, just worked on that act and, and developed it and honed it, then uh, I would have really been like doing stand-up for a lot longer than I actually have now. But instead, I became confident. I went back with, with nothing prepared. So I thought, I'm just good at this. And I went on stage with no material, and I just uh, bombed, (laughs) you know? It was just a desperately traumatic experience.
0: (laughs) It was awful. And what made you motivated to go back after you had a couple bad experiences?
1: Well, in early sobriety, sitting in the comedy club just to watch the show, I just had this, like, feeling like, oh, I should do it. I should get on that stage. And um, it just kind of built up, and we were filming... the third Jackass movie, um, and when I went in for my very first interview, like before all the real promotional machine revved up, um, I, I was to be interviewed immediately after Dan Cook, and and so I walked in there, I met him. It was you know, perfectly nice, and and I said to him, uh, man, I've. I've Dabbled in stand-up before and I really want to dive in
0: and he ended up mentoring you kind of yeah
1: right? He said uh, he said cool man, like I'll give you my number We'll get you on stage next week and I went on stage like two comics after Sarah Silverman and immediately before Dane Cook. I was so nervous and um You know, I I went, then Dane Cook went, and then immediately after his set, he sits down with me to give me notes on on my performance. That's cool. And uh, you see, he said that it was all about, uh, you know, the delivery of it. And I was just so, you know, tense and nervous. He says, you've got to relax, dude. Mm -hmm. You've got to relax. And um, that was, I believe, on a Wednesday night. The following Friday, two days later... I, I, on my own initiative, I go. I'm at the Laugh Factory now to to go and try it again. And uh, he said, um, "All right, now you're too relaxed. You know, like <laughs> you know, now you're like tr- trying to be relaxed." He said, uh, "You got to remember that this is a performance. You know, you need to be uh, like an animated version of yourself. You got to have some energy." So it was like I was in this weird uh, Dane Cook like. You know, mentor thing. Right. Just the fact that he took his time to take me under his wing, like, was just put so much wind in my sails. And then Jackass 3D came out. That day, uh, I was on Howard Stern. I said to Howard Stern, I'm in the comedy club every night, man. I'm doing stand up and I'm loving it. And I want to do a gig in New York tonight. And uh, because I said that, uh, my lawyer ended up calling me uh, maybe a week or two later. He said, he said, I don't know what happened, but I'm getting calls from all over the country. Everybody wants to book you uh, doing stand-up.
0: Well, that's great.
1: And uh, I just went off on this career, and I just kind of learned as I went. Um, and, and I was so passionate about it. And then uh, about a year later, I'd show up at the laugh factory. I'd bump into Dane Cook. He goes, where have you been, man? And I said, uh, dude, since I saw you last, I've uh, headlined shows in like 11 different countries. <laughs> <laughs> and he just goes, he just laughs. And he goes, oh man, comics must f-ing hate you. <laughs> you know, like. Um, And and overall, that's not been my experience. I think, you know, for the most part, there's been very little uh, animosity towards me doing stand-up from comics that I've been aware of.
0: Um, Conversation with, like, I guess the Netflix uh, comedy head, and um, the the challenges with that (sighs) dialogue would be what?
1: It's it's so. Frustrating man after my first special came out and I put together a new act it occurred to me one night Wow all these stories that I'm telling transpired initially on camera So what if I had a stand-up comedy act that had the footage of the stories? I'm telling edited into it? sure. It would be a multimedia comedy special and that's just never happened and uh, And I just got so excited about it. There's nothing like it out there and uh, I ended up, at the end of the day, I spent like $262,000 on the, the final product. And I just thought, this is, this is it. So then I, I signed with this new agent, they bring it out. And um, Netflix apparently is uh, just so swamped with comedy specials that they only want to give them to the most prestigious, pure, you know, lifelong stand-up comedians of which they do not consider me to be one. And then for the other buyers it's like, are you kidding me? In some cases it was just so like outlandishly explicit that people are just like, we just can't show that. And then in other places they're like, we're like comedy snobs and, and you're not prestigious enough in the in the space. So I ended up sitting here like on this nuclear bomb that uh, doesn't have a home,
0: but so you're still in the process. Oh, I'm, not, I'm
1: not. I'm not going to part with it until yeah. uh, until it gets the love that, that it deserves. And um, for the difficulty that I've had um, selling that as a comedy special, uh, there's another department um, that just does the non-scripted. Right. And they heard that I was doing what I call Steve-O's bucket list. Right. Which is a like you know, a uh, list of stunts that are not new ideas, but they're just so crazy. I never pictured them actually happening. And uh, now I'm going through with each and every one of them and um, you know, I've creating a series of, uh, you know, every episode is a different item on the list. So that's where I'm at. Faced with rejection, I have doubled down and I am going like completely crazier than ever.
0: So I want to take you uh, way back to when you know you were younger in the early days of just figuring out career path you want to take. You're uh, 19, 20 years old. You dropped out of college. What do you remember from begging for food?
1: Yeah, I was a freelance busboy. I would go help myself to whatever people left on the table in the restaurant. Um, you could say that I was. You could say that I dropped out of college. You could also say that I failed out of college. You could also say that I was kicked out of college because uh, I was like...
0: You weren't committed to college.
1: <laughs> I was unable to bring myself to class, hence my failing grades. Um, I was completely formally kicked out of the dorms and, uh, and I upped and left you were without, kicked with, out without of the, withdrawing. You were kicked out
0: of the dorms, why?
1: When I showed up at college, within two weeks of class starting, I was on final disciplinary probation, my freshman year, uh, because they raided my room and found a bunch of marijuana and alcohol and and uh, they relocated me to this twelve story dorm. Um, and the staircase was separated from the building, you know by balconies. Mm-hmm. The staircase went up thirteen floors.
0: Okay. You
1: know, with access to the roof, but the door was locked. So, one night, like all drunk, I I smashed out the window on that thirteenth level, climbed out, and you know, over like (laughs) I I went over onto the roof, and then from the other side, you could just open up the door. I got away with it that first night, and then it was sort of a routine. We're like, oh, yeah, you know, hey, you guys want to go on the roof? Like, um, And I would climb through and open up the door, and, you know, we'd be parting on the roof, and uh, probably would have gotten away with it for considerably longer, but there was a radio tower that went up on, you know, the top of the roof, uh-huh. and I climbed up that, and it's kind of, <laughs> you know, uh, and I was spotted. What's this? doing on the radio tower up above this building and and, um, so I was up there and the cops came onto the roof and pretty cool way to get kicked out of the dorms (laughs) and and then uh, I got in a van with this guy uh, who was also dropping out and we drove from Miami to Northern California to try to get jobs at a ski resort and uh, along with that would come uh, free lift passes And I would be totally rad at snowboarding and become a a famous professional stuntman because that was what I was doing. I was dropping out of college to become a professional crazy man uh, with with my home video camera. And there was no precedent for for such a career. And everybody that I told this idea to just felt bad for me. (laughs) Just thought, what a shame. What a loser. This guy is going nowhere. Could you
0: tell that when you were telling them? I think so. And I
1: I don't know that I believed that I was going to have any real success. And and frankly, I had lost every job. I had been fired from every job I ever tried to have. I got fired from every job. I could not go to class. I could not do anything that uh, responsible people do. I lacked the survival skills to make it in the world, and I felt sure about that. So uh, I didn't think that I was going to have any success. I figured I would probably just fail at life and die young having failed. Really? Yeah, I think that that that, that was probably my core belief about myself. And so before I died, I wanted to uh, document as much wild and crazy entertaining stuff as I could. And I think, you know, in a lot of ways, it was kind of like me packing my message into the bottle mm-hmm. so that it could float around and I could exist after uh, I was dead. <laughs> you know, I thought maybe uh, being posthumously recognized for being a crazy man <laughs> would do the trick. But yeah, so, so I got in the van with the guy. We had 600 bucks between us. We drove from Miami to Northern California to start a new life. It wasn't snowing, there were no jobs. We turned around, we went back to Colorado and just were homeless there for a little bit. I I, uh, caught a ride with another dude and we drove to Austin, Texas to have the government test drugs on us for money. And they do that for anything that comes in contact with people, toothpaste, this or that. But if it's more dangerous, then you get paid more. So we went for the most dangerous possible medical study where they tested on us drugs for pigs and cows called dopamine hydrochloride. All they knew was that it was dangerous, that uh, our heart rate would go faster. The target for the study was to give us this drug until somebody's resting heart rate was 160 beats per minute, which is hilarious. And uh, yeah, I got 2,000 bucks for... Um, 12 days. While we were waiting to get into that medical study, we were sleeping on a roof.
0: Um, What do you mean sleeping on a roof? Like what, how did the idea for that come about?
1: Well, it it occurred to me, at the time I was sort of all into like climbing up on roofs and looking for, uh, you know, gaps to jump or pools to jump into. And um, it it seemed safer to uh, climb on a roof that nobody would think to climb up on. Um, to sleep, than to sleep on a sidewalk where you could be found and messed with, or so yeah, so we slept on a rooftop I did, because you're homeless, yeah,, yeah. Uh, no money, right, yeah, I would do like backflips for like fifty cents or something, and then with fifty cents, I would go buy a, a forty nine cent loaf of bread. So that they would be looking at me buying the bread, and not realizing that I had stolen the hot dogs. And then I would go from the supermarket with my stolen hot dogs and my legitimately purchased bread. And like walk over to the 7 and use their microwave to microwave my hot dogs and use all their condiments. And it was a pretty good system.
0: Well, why did it? I mean, your dad, obviously, was really successful professionally. Right. Why not uh, call home and
1: say, hey, mom and
0: dad can have some money?
1: It's a good question. I think that the the true answer is that dad instilled a a level of pride in me that uh, I I wasn't willing to expect my parents to pay for me to be doing nothing that they considered productive.
0: How aware were they of what you were doing at the time? They had no idea where
1: I was in the world. They didn't know that I was in Texas, let alone having the government test drugs on me for money. What
0: did they think was going they on They just hadn't
1: heard from me for six months or so. Which is sad, it's really sad.
0: How old do you recall being a clown in a Florida flea market? Ah,
1: I remember everything about it. I uh, graduated from Ringling Brothers and Barnum Belly Clown College, which is you know a rather prestigious accomplishment. Um, I was not chosen for uh, the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Billy Circus. I ended up getting a job on Royal Caribbean Cruise Lines as a clown, and I was fired unceremoniously. I was actually fired by the other clowns in my troupe. How did that happen? Well, they. apparently went to the, the, the cruise ship Brass and they said, if Steve-O comes back for another contract, we all quit.
0: Why? <laughs>
1: um, I, I was uh, generally disrespectful. Um, I didn't think that, that the stuff that they um, were seeking to do as performers was uh, like cool. Funny or or rad, <laughs> and um I didn't really um like care to participate with them and what they wanted to do. Uh, I had my own skill set, and it was sort of you know I had a handful of really crowd pleasing abilities, mm-hmm. and uh I was sort of just renegade rogue, like rad clown, and uh, i it was disrespectful, and I didn't like that. And I deserved to be fired, but I also think I deserved to be told that that was the case. I had our boss clown, who was not part of our troupe, uh, tell me in, in uh, confidence. He said, I'm going to tell you something and you can't let anybody know because if it comes out that I told you, then I'm going to lose my job. Mm-hmm. But all these clowns, there's a clown mutiny. <laughs> you know? And uh, you're not coming back for another uh, contract. So, it's time to call up your skateboard buddies and, and try and get something to happen because you have no job. And thank God that he did that because uh, you know, I sort of started planning. And I called up Jeff Tremaine, um, who would become the director of Jackass. And I told him, oh, dude, I'm on this cruise ship walking stilts. And uh, I'm so terrified of falling over if anything happens and I fall that I'm like, I know that's what I gotta do. So I, I'm going to light my entire stilt costume on fire. And I'm going to have a unicyclist ride through my flaming stilt while a skateboarder jumps over my head and through a fireball that I'm blowing out of my mouth. And then I'm going to crack open a beer while I'm on fire and pound it as I tip myself over
0: <laughs> and, and crash
1: the, on, the, on the ground.
0: And Jeff said what? And Jeff
1: said, yeah, we'll shoot that. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, planned it all out. It happened on December thirtieth of nineteen ninety nine. This was the day that I met Johnny Knoxville. You know, there's a whole like shoot. I flew myself out to California, and I thought that I was shooting it for a skateboard magazine. Mm-hmm. At the time, uh, Jeff Tremaine was in charge of Big Brother Skateboarding Magazine, which had featured me fairly regularly at that point. And uh, when I made this call to him, I was trying to get on the cover with this epic stilt stunt. Uh-huh. So I flew myself out uh, to California with all the savings that I had from the cruise ship. I essentially spent it all just, you know, trying to go be in a skateboard magazine. Yeah. And once I showed up in California, Jeff said, okay, now you, you've come this far. I'll tell you, we're not doing this for, uh, for the skateboard magazine. We're doing this for a pilot for an MTV show. So congratulations, you know, like we've like, you're in. And then later we found out that MTV is particularly touchy about fire, and that they would, they said no way we'll ever show that. That footage was never going to see the light of day. But it got me on on Jackass, and thank God because had it not all happened that way, instead of getting my spot on Jackass, I would have been floating in the middle of the. Caribbean ocean juggling oranges for tourists on a cruise ship.
0: So, Jackass premieres by week two, it's the highest rated show in MTV's right. uh, history. How immediately and in what ways did your life change?
1: It was overnight. The very next day after it aired, uh, like, like my life was totally different, which speaks to how much less fragmented the media was back then. You know, uh, I mean, granted, with basic cable, there's still a lot of channels, but nothing like it is now. Being on the number one show on MTV at that time really could change your life. It turned out.
0: What sort of political pressure was on MTV pretty well, soon after it came out to just get there, rid of there the was, show?
1: There, there was very understandable pressure on MTV because here we've got this show. Despite its warnings, you know all these stunts are—you know—don't copy them. Kids were showing up in hospitals, like all over the place. Really? Yeah, like like and directly because of us. <laughs> you know, I think one kid died, like falling out of a truck or something. Like there, there were uh, there were never—I don't think—any lawsuits. Um, but there was just the fear of lawsuits, you know, Senator Joe Lieberman really campaigned behind the outrage and, and, uh, you know, so what happened was MTV started really, uh, being fearful, really like limiting what they would show and censoring us. Mm-hmm. And Knoxville, uh,
0: wouldn't have it. He just
1: said, no, I'm not doing a watered down version of this. You guys can f*** right off. I quit. And that left the rest of us, able, like what do you mean you quit? Like, what are, but he knew what he was doing all along. He wanted, uh, you know, he didn't want basic cable television money. He wanted like box office movie money. And, uh, and so he saw it as a way to um, make a movie, you know, he said to the, I mean, I don't know how it went on behind closed doors, but the idea was, well, if you guys are so worried about kids getting hurt make a m- movie with an R rating and then you've got that protection. Cause kids can't see it. So then we can be even crazier and then we can have a movie. So, so he would have just got a movie deal. It's pretty genius.
0: And so you end up uh, making a, a few movies that are right. Every like fabulously one of them. successful. Um, you know, I I know when people have asked you this before, you guys have said it's because you're just, getting too old, but I mean, it's kind of bull because you guys aren't that old. Oh, um, well wh- wh- like, wh- why, why not make uh, another movie, given the success of the past? I mean, ones?
1: that's a great question. I don't know. I mean, the, the short answer is that uh, Knoxville's not interested in doing that. Um,
0: what conversations have you had with him about it?
1: Well, there's been emails um, from some of the other guys, particularly one guy <laughs> who periodically what? Has uh, sent group emails to to Knoxville, Spike Jones, Tremaine, the whole cast, saying, you know, come on guys, let's make another movie. Everybody wants it. You know, like I get asked every day, are we going to make another movie? And um, Knoxville responded to the last one uh, with, I get asked every day if we're going to make another movie as well. But I would rather people ask for another movie than why did you make that last movie. You know, he wanted to sort of keep the, the legacy intact. And uh, I can't I can't really argue with it.
0: What do you think the likelihood is it ever happened?
1: I would say it's not.
0: Uh, I want to go back to uh, Johnny Knoxville momentarily. What do you think he meant to Jackass?
1: Um, without him, we wouldn't have gotten anywhere. You know, like his uh, shocking good looks. I think that's fair to say. Like w- women were, were shocked by how... Attractive he was, uh, like as the face of it, he really had this incredible star quality, and like just his whole, uh, I don't know, his talent, his his on camera wit, his his charisma, his looks, and uh, his f-ing insanity. You can't take away from Knoxville that that uh, he's absolutely the craziest one of all of us.
0: What about uh, to you personally?
1: Well, I just always, you know, have referred to him as the captain. You know, like I, uh, I, I attribute my success to to his success largely. I look at him, uh, in a lot of ways, as like somewhere between a big brother and and a father figure. Really? Kind of. Yeah. Really. Like um, the the uh, the approval, the praise uh, of Knoxville is uh, is paramount. And he doesn't mince words with me. He doesn't sugarcoat anything. Like I'll share with him, uh, you know, every and any project that I'm working on uh, to get notes and feedback from him. He has never failed to uh, to really like give it his full undivided attention and and uh, like laboriously give me thoughtful feedback. And that just means the world to me.
0: I want to run through uh, some of your notable stunts over the years and just get you to recall what you remember from each one. Um, Piercing your cheek with the fish hook.
1: Um, We did it twice, that piercing thing. Um, The first time was a professional body piercer doing it. So there's Pontius and me and this body piercer guy.
0: The second time you did it yourself
1: Well, the second time Pontius helped me with it It was most yeah, i like I think uh, I got it started and Pontius muscled it through it was um Yeah, it was 2006 and we were shooting jackass number two and I I, I injured my back uh, Getting thrown downstairs on a bellhop cart um, and, and I was unable to participate in a lot of the the bits and um so this shark thing was really important to me. I was Everyone else was getting all this great stuff and I had like next to nothing. And so yeah, we put the hook through my face again and we cast me out and this time uh, a mako shark was coming for me. And so I'm like, like, I like jerk. And in that sort of jerking motion I accidentally kicked a mako shark in the face. <laughs> Which I suppose saved my foot.
0: <laughs> what about uh, leeches on the eyes?
1: Knox was mad at me because uh, I, 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 I proverbially tapped out too soon. He wanted to see it go on for longer. But but the thing was the thing. It looked
0: was, pretty brutal. One of it. It was, it was great.
1: Yeah, it was great. But uh, what was interesting about the leech on the eye thing was that I don't think the leech was nearly as as painful or uncomfortable as just keeping your eye open for a long time. I mean, you get to a certain point with your eye open, you got to blink that thing. Right. (laughs) And uh, I think what I was up against on the leech bit was was just the duration of having my eye open far more than the leech itself.
0: What about walking over the tightrope? Over an alligator pond with raw chicken in your yeah. underwear. Yeah,
1: I, I was under the impression that that my job that day was to get bitten by an alligator.
0: What do you uh, mean you were under the impression? I just
1: I just figured like okay we're gonna do you know tightrope over alligators, like uh, to me that just kind of like meant okay I'm getting bit by an alligator. <laughs> I kind of thought that was uh, the thing. I, I and so. Like, what a treat that that got to be, like, you know, arguably an iconic jackass moment. And uh, I didn't get hurt at all.
0: The longest you've ever been electrocuted before would be what?
1: The interesting part about that was that when you see the police shoot someone with a taser, they're in control of it, and it goes for five seconds. And at the police discretion, they can hit you with another five seconds. But the civilian version of the taser is designed so that you can shoot your assailant and drop it and run. And so the civilian version, you hit the, and it just keeps going for 30 seconds. It gives you 30 seconds to run. And when uh, I brought up the idea of getting tased for my first comedy special, uh, I was told, I've got good news and I've got bad news. The good news is I have a tasered, the bad news is I've got the 30 second version. But I was concerned that now 30 seconds is just gonna kinda get boring. 30 seconds is a pretty long time. Right. So we did a, a 30 second Q and A my buddy dressed up in, as like a, a TV show host, like in a suit and he came out and he did like a, a lightning round of questions. Like, wow, <laughs> the lightning, <laughs> the lightning round. Like, uh, what's your name? <laughs> <laughs> like, and uh, so that made it really funny.
0: Uh, the porta potty slingshot.
1: I have this like super irrational fear of roller coasters and bungee jumping and um, certainly skydiving and so like, if anybody was going to get in a porta potty and be catapulted like with bungee cords like up into the sky, like I'm the one that's going to react the most.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I, like having just gotten sober, like I felt really strongly that I've survived enough at this point in my life that like dying over a stunt would be disappointing. <laughs> you know, like death and paralysis were like off the table for me. But anything else, I'm in. And with the five point harness, the bungee, porta potty. Was, was like safe and sure, that's probably the poo is more dangerous than anything. And uh, OSHA determined that you can't um, be covered in human poo, but they were okay with dog poo. And somehow there's a company, I think in Los Angeles, that will sell you as much dog poo as you want. And so they bought enough dog poo to fill a porta potty. And uh, and that's what, that's what it was. It was dog pretty classic.
0: Maybe this is less of a stunt. Um, scuba diving on a cocaine bender.
1: Oh, I got scuba certified on a cocaine bender. Uh, like there's nothing legal or, or, or sh- that should be legitimate about my scuba certification. Um, it's supposed to happen over a course of so many days. I think we crammed it into a three day period, which invalidates it. And on top of that, I did not sleep for that entire three-day period. I just uh, kept doing drugs the whole time. I I remember like little to nothing about, uh, you know, whatever the mechanics of scuba. I don't don't, like. I should not be certified.
0: Didn't you almost (laughs) get yourself into like real? The closest I've
1: ever come to death, like actual death, I think uh, was scuba diving. We were somewhere, and I can't remember what part of the world, maybe, I, I don't know, We're <laughs> somewhere, some part of the world, and uh, we're getting ready to scuba dive with sharks. Uh, I heard them say the sharks were at the bottom, so I just go to the bottom. I keep going to the bottom, and uh, I don't know if uh, if I was coming up or down, or, but at one point, someone grabs my fin. And... Uh, and, you know, like I don't know what's going on, and they and when we get up, they they're screaming at me, you know, uh, you mother f- you almost died, and I almost died trying to save you because I was doing it wrong, <laughs> like you can't go down too fast or like or something, and I just I was like, dude, they said the sharks were on the bottom, <laughs> that's, where I was, that's where I was, you know, so yeah, it's f- up. and like I continue to be able to scuba dive. Like I don't know if I'm in the system, but uh, like, but yeah, like I, I continue to be able to scuba dive, and and I should not.
0: <laughs> How do you get the idea to staple your scrotum to your leg?
1: When I worked on cruise ships, um, we would do a weekly report, as we typed the report, uh, the, this clown sitting next to me didn't really have anything to do, and you know, I'm typing, and he just kind of got bored or you know. He grabbed a stapler and just, and he banged a staple into his arm. And I was just like, "Oh my god, that's the coolest thing ever!" You know. And we got paid in cash every two weeks. So then the next time we got paid, I filmed a bit called "The Thousand Dollar Man," and it was a hundred dollar bills. And I did like one here, like all the way up, like across, you know. Pop, 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 and uh, you know I had money stapled all, all over. It was great, and and I went into my own uh, too hot for TV tour, like in the very early days, and that was part of my thing. I'd have chicks throw their bras or panties on the stage, and I would pick them up and staple them. I'd be the uh, the bra and panty Christmas tree. I mean, and and uh, at one point before the bra and panty bit was part of the tour. Um, they just didn't have an office stapler. All they had was a staple gun. And uh, and I was like, oh, f-, you know, <laughs> like, all right, you know. And so now I'm pumping in. And it might have been that night or right around that time. As soon as I'm doing it with a staple gun, I like I just, I, I'm going to staple my ball sack to my leg. Like, that's going to make me a legend. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's sort of like kind of crazy to say, oh, well, you know, that made me a legend. But like, You know arguably like what I'm known for is I'm the guy who stapled it's like one of the things I could It's like uh, what do you
0: remember from the first time of actually doing it?
1: I remember uh, it not being no it was awful. I was gonna say it wasn't as bad as I thought but it was awful as I recall I thought that actually stapling my ball sack to my leg in and of itself might come off as like just sort of disturbing and, and upsetting And I wanted it to be hilarious. So I came up with the idea, okay, I'm going to staple my ball sack to both of my legs and I'm going to call it the butterfly, <laughs> right? And, and uh, that kind of lightens the load. It makes it more light and funny. so now. It's an experiment to see if it looks like a butterfly, which it didn't.
0: <laughs> it did and not, it, and
1: it made the footage that much better because I had done the one side, and now I still have to do the other side. So uh, there is just this you know hectic kind of pandemonium uh, about it all, and um, yeah, it didn't look like a. a <laughs> It didn't look like a, a butterfly at all.
0: How'd you get arrested? It yeah, looked a little
1: bit like well, it just looked like a dead bat. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Wait, so how'd you get arrested for it? Um,
1: one night uh, in Louisiana, I had a show, and um, I, there was sort of a, there, there's a lot of crowd participation in those uh, early tours. So I just, you know, just improvising, I said, wow, these bouncers are great. Who wants to get on stage and try to run across the stage past the bouncers? It's called British Bulldog. <laughs> and uh, there was this kid who jumped up and down. I mean, he was just like, so he, want, like, he was jumping. My, my attention went to this kid. He wanted it so bad. And I was like, get on up here. Come on, this kid's gonna try and run past these bouncers. They're gonna him up. And uh, I'm filming it. The kid like, I, I go one, two, three, go. The kid like runs, just, it was so anticlimactic. He just didn't get it anywhere. It just, they just grabbed him. And as like almost an afterthought, both of these bouncers hoisted the kid up above their heads and then slammed him on the stage, like on his head. And he's just like knocked out and twitching. I think there was like a report that he was bleeding out of one of his ears. And he was like, and they're like, call the ambulance. Like the kid's just like, not okay. <laughs> you know, he's not okay. Like it was pretty awful and dark. And there was somebody in the audience who uh, had a home video camera and was taping the whole show. And they felt pretty strongly that what they had documented with that camera constituted a crime. Or, at least a, a story. They they gave the video to the newspaper. The newspaper said, no, we gotta give this to the cops. And uh you know, by this point I'm back home in LA expecting to hear about it at some point. Mm-hmm. But uh the cops showed up and they arrested me. I landed on the fugitive warrant, like like top of the list, because I had two charges. One was for principal to second-degree battery for orchestrating the thing where the kid got hurt by the bouncers. And the second charge was for felony obscenity, because during the same performance, uh, I got naked and stapled my ball sack to my leg. I was covered in blood because of the whole, uh, you know, cut my tongue act with the broken light bulb. And uh, I mean, it was just a pretty, like, grizzly looking scene. As I went to staple my ball sack that night, I said, this is not art, this is strictly to be offensive. <laughs> I mean, mind you, it was art, okay? It was totally art. But, uh, but yeah, so um, my bail for the battery charge was set at $120,000. My bail for the obscenity charge was set at $1 million. So I landed on the fugitive list um, with $1.12 million bail, which made me like the top priority. So they just came and got me and, and locked me up in jail.
0: So explain why you're concerned about testicular cancer.
1: I heard they getting kicked in the balls a lot, like a lot of trauma to your testicles. Um, increases your chances for testicular cancer. So um, once I heard that, I decided to be like, I mean, I guess I was always pretty selective, but it's gotta be like a really special occasion if I'm gonna take a nut shot. <laughs> you know, I'm just closing the door on nut shots by going through with the vasectomy Olympics.
0: What happened there? That was,
1: uh, I got a vasectomy. i say I heard a joke when I was a little kid. Um, what's the definition of macho? a man who jogs home from his own vasectomy. And like, from when I was a little kid, like, I want to be macho, you know? And I just thought, like, it just was in my mind. Like, it's like a stunt. So yeah, that's the oldest idea on my bucket list. How'd it go? It it was a spectacular success. Like, thank God, like, it wasn't just a bunch of crazy stuff happened, but there was like the payoff, that like the visual shot of like two days later and like, it's just, you're looking at a plum in my ball sack. is just like, it's like a plum, it, you know, just filled with blood and, and just totally glorious.
0: How concerned are you about head trauma?
1: Head trauma, um, I, I like, it's in the news, you know, like the CTE stuff. And um, I can count five times where I was uh, hitting the head hard enough to actually like black out. You know, I like to like lose a moment in time. Um, and and that's that's concerning to me. I mean, especially where the one time I, I landed on, on my face um, on concrete off a second floor balcony. Um, just, like you know I've been and then with my tour, like I would hit myself in the head so much. Uh, with you know, what? Well, every time I came on stage was with a case of beer to Slayer, and like when the tune broke, I'd be like, boom, 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 smashing beer cans until they exploded on my head and I would do two at the same time and every night like while well, I'm throwing out beers. And I stopped doing that because in the morning I'd like wake up and I'd be like so dizzy. I'd be like trying to walk to the bathroom. I'd be going diagonally. Oh, you would? Yeah, like it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was alarming. And so that, you know, and just all I was just being hit in the head, you know, like quite a bit, it makes me concerned.
0: Do you feel like the injuries you've sustained over the years are are impacting you in some way today?
1: Mm, I've been fortunate for the most part. Recently, I went in to uh, have my brain scanned um, at a place called Peak Brain Institute, and they did all this stuff. um, And their uh, professional opinion was that my brain was far less damaged than they'd imagined it would be. And that more than the injury... Uh, residual injury to my brain that what stood out to them was um, long-term drug and alcohol abuse and it's, it's interesting too because I've always said that you know I don't know what's been more dangerous for me my professional life or my personal life because they were both at times like very dangerous.
0: What's the esophagus condition you've spoken yeah. about before?
1: Uh, that's um I don't, I don't even know what I think it's just from acid reflux. But all of the barfing that I would do, uh, in my professional and my personal life, um, all the drugs, the smoking, like I don't know. But um, I have an erosion of uh, of the esophagus. It's called Barrett's esophagus, and it's concerning because um, it's uh, like one of the things that happens before esophageal cancer. So it's something that that I take pretty seriously, and. Uh, monitor pretty closely
0: Addiction Um, why did you think you had uh, sex addiction
1: when I got to my late 30s? And I was sort of knocking on the door of 40 and I was on this comedy tour and you know like hooking up with random chicks all the time Like it really occurred to me that 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 is not the the path to uh, like happiness and you know I thought, I, I want to be happy, I want to have a good life, and I subscribe to the belief that that means I need to learn to have a healthy relationship so that I can have a, you know, a life partner. And um, I resolved to stop hooking up with random chicks on the road. And when I made that promise to myself, I was unable to keep it. And so therein is sort of the definition of addiction. I didn't want to do it, and I couldn't stop myself from doing it. So uh, I, when I got, I got a therapist, and uh, you know, I took it super, super seriously, like just the same way I did with drugs and alcohol.
0: How much did it help?
1: Um, it, it helped a ton, you know? I mean, and, and like, here, like here, I'm a guy who doesn't know moderation, so when I got in that, uh, you know, that in, like when I was in that intensive program, which was in October of 2013, um, man, two thousand and thirteen was a crazy year. Two thousand and thirteen was the year Knoxville was filming the Bad Grandpa movie the whole time mm-hmm. and um to me, and I think I can speak for the rest of the guys in the jackass cast, like it was like, wait, hold on a second, it's a jackass movie, but we're not in it like it was like there was like Knoxville went solo like with Jackass, you know, like now we have to figure out what it's like to be the Jackson four yeah. <laughs> you know like. It was it was like this like, I just didn't understand it, and it was scary. And and I was in a really dark place. And at you were. S- oh yeah. Because of that. That was really really like uh, upsetting to me. It, like I just went into like a, a dark dark place, and and um. And
0: this is post rehab, oh, yeah. and like you've uh-huh. been clean for a while, and right. And, uh-huh. yeah.
1: This is I got sober in two thousand mm-hmm. and eight, and I'm talking about two thousand thirteen. Right. So, on top of that, I had this show that uh, I hosted on True TV where you know, we would do terrible things to people while they were singing karaoke, and that was like, kind of funny. But a lot of the things involved animals, and I wasn't comfortable with what was happening. So, as we went into the second season, I said, Hey, guys, I just, I'm not cool with uh, the animal stuff and so they were like oh, okay that's great you're fired <laughs> basically i mean i don't like i just found out that they went with another host mm-hmm. so in that year 2013 i felt from my looking at it that i had been fired essentially from jackass and from the only gig that i had going like i like felt like i lost everything and like here's this you know like just doomsday gloom dark place and uh and I, you know, I was I was acting out sexually a lot on the, you know, the, the comedy tour and the, you know, the whole deal. And I ended up going into that, uh, you know, that intensive sex therapy program, um, making sure that I was tied up doing that uh, when the premiere for the Bad Grandpa movie happened because it just hurt too much to even think about being at that premiere. So I was doing, I was doing that, and. I come out of this, uh, this sex program. They recommend a period of celibacy when, uh, when you start out um, in, in recovery with the sex stuff, because uh, it's supposed to kind of reprogram your, your brain somehow. So I decided I'm gonna go for a whole year.
0: What do they recommend? I still
1: don't even remember why I kept going after a full year, but I went 461 days. And they don't recommend anything. like, like, like It's very case-by-case. Case, okay. There's not one you know, thing that they recommend for everybody. But for me, it was recommended that, that I be celibate, I think, for, for a year. Wow. I went for a year and three months, which at the end of the day, I think, was like just sort of sexual anorexia. You know I don't know that there's anything healthy about that approach in hindsight and um, I uh, you know came out of that and then I got into this relationship with someone who lived uh, in England that was just not gonna work and uh, and then I got out of that relationship and I got in another relationship that was not gonna work and uh, and then I was at a point thinking like I yeah, and I just went off the rails again, you know, like sexually and it really, I think it's kind of like where um, if you've been sober, like uh, from drugs and alcohol and then you relapse, mm-hmm. you kind of can't enjoy it or, or like it just gets really bad really fast. And then and I think in the long run, that was the most helpful thing for me because uh, cause then I was like, then I was just like really ready, you know, and that was... Back in uh, 2016 and then uh, 2017, yeah. I, I met my girl and uh, now here I am with like like really meaningful time under my belt and from both drugs and alcohol and any kind of inappropriate sexual behavior and I'm just in trouble with food. With food? Yeah, which is like, you know, it sucks like too. How so? like uh I like I'm just like powerless man and it's and it's crazy like I, I act out with food, candy, I mean, you, you can ask my girl like it's like uh it's like pathetic, like some of the food choices that you know like just like and and where like like
0: binge eating or- like yeah
1: binge eat, like just binge eating like candy, donuts, like you know like uh it's awful and 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 to look at me, you wouldn't think that that's the case, but uh, but uh, like uh, genetically, I somehow you know get away with it to a degree. But here's the pisser: is that when I went to go do the mountain climbing show in Peru, I had a physical to clear me for the job, right? And the doctor called me back and said, "Dude, you have pre-diabetes," and to me, that is the most like humiliating possible concept where I've been this like, like a, be veggie, animal rights, like eating meat causes diabetes, yeah. <laughs> you know? So for me to turn around and get diabetes would like make me a, a really embarrassed dude. And like, he's like, you gotta like exercise more and you've gotta like knock it off with all the bread and the sugar because you're on track to get diabetes. And in the face of that news, I can't put down the Reese's. You can't. Well, like now I'm on this like whole thing with, uh, you know, my food diary and all that. So, you know, but it's not the first time. And and I just like, I I really am like, I don't know. I've I've really uh, got my fingers crossed for the day when I can feel like the the food behavior is you know under control like the other things.
0: Uh, Mike Tyson. What happened when you ran into him in the Hollywood Hills?
1: That night we were at a nightclub first and then everybody was going to this after party and I kind of found out where it was and invited myself along and you know like showed up and banged on the door and Mike Tyson opened it and I and I was like, uh, like hey is it, like, is it cool if I come in and I remember he like swung his like uh like swung his fist like past me and like hit me in the back of the head, knocking me like get in here, you know like like yeah get in here. And then he's like, you got any coke? And I was like, yeah, dude, I have a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, I remember having like uh, like half an eight ball in uh, in one pocket and like an untouched eight ball in the other pocket, like uh, which wasn't like which was more than I would usually have. <laughs> And uh, so, yeah, we locked ourselves in this bathroom and- and Just just, you
0: and Mike Tyson? Just me
1: and Mike Tyson. And the year was, uh, I believe, 2005. And um, we went through all of it. (laughs) Him smoking it. He took a cigarette. Like initially, I'd never seen anything like this. You know, like he took a cigarette, asked me for a cigarette. And he rolled it back and forth between his fingers so that all the tobacco like fell out, and it just left like a, a hollow like cylinder of cigarette paper attached to the filter. So he, he's, he started just scooping powder cocaine, just powder cocaine, into, the, uh, into this hollow cigarette, and like, just kept filling it up and packing it down and filling it up. And I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking like just purely logistically, like, that can't work, (laughs) you know, like, figure the paper's got to burn faster than, you know, than, than, like, pure nothing but cocaine, but I'm just fascinated, I'm just sitting there watching, like, uh, watching him do it, and then, um, I think he pulled out the filter, like, you know, whatever, just made it, and then he made it work, he smoked the whole thing, and I was just, uh, like, generally fascinated, and I just let him just keep doing it, and I'm snorting it, and he's smoking it, and until it was all gone.
0: What are you guys talking about?
1: We, like, we were in that bathroom for hours. (laughs) Like, hours and hours. And uh, before we parted ways, he said, you know, Steve, everybody's got you wrong. You're, You're a really smart guy. And then I just thought, like, wow, like, Mike Tyson just told me I'm smart.
0: How did the two of you then later wind up locked up together in a psych ward? By
1: pure coincidence, in 2008 uh, I was locked up in in a psychiatric ward and lo and behold Mike Tyson showed up as a patient and uh, this time I pitched to him that uh, I, I wanted to have him hold his fist out and me run into his fist with my face and try to give myself a black eye. And uh, and he he politely declined.
0: What did he say? He said,
1: I don't want to hurt you, Steve.
0: Um, All right, so uh, drugs. I think you had your first drink at 12. Uh, You started... Uh,
1: No, I didn't have my first... I had my first drink before 12. And I'm guessing that uh, it was my parents who gave it to me. I mean, my mom was, of course, uh, an alcoholic, and and along with that is uh, you know sort of hypersensitivity and you know overly concerned with the opinions of others. And when I was a baby, mom was like uh, not comfortable with me crying on an airplane. You know, she didn't want to be like that you know, with the loud baby on the airplane. And uh, so she would give me booze.
0: <laughs> Are you serious?
1: I think so. Yeah, like when I was like pretty young, like. I mean, we could check with uh, with my dad or my sister, but uh, I don't think anybody ever disputed that. I mean, not a lot of booze, but just a little bit, just, you know, a little
0: bit of booze. To what? To, <laughs> to, make, you to make me
1: not cry okay. <laughs> on the plane. But uh, then I think before I was 12, um, it was uh, like a family tradition kind of a thing, that on New Year's, the kids could have one alcoholic beverage. And... Um, I think I remember having alcohol on New Year's Eve when I was like eight or nine. You know, I would have like a beer or something, you know. I think the idea was if you, if you let the kids, then it's not like, I mean, whatever they were gonna do, it was gonna blow up in their faces. So mm-hmm. I don't fault anybody for anything they did in uh, trying to manage me as a child.
0: Name all the drugs you can remember doing over the years.
1: Ah. Uh, My favorites were ketamine, cocaine, nitrous oxide, PCP, um, of course marijuana, alcohol. Oh, I loved Xanax so much, and Valium. Um, Never uh, got too into meth, but I never turned it down. Um, Had some pretty terrible experiences on magic mushrooms. but I had a lot of great experience on on LSD, and uh, like randoms weird stuff. I I huffed video head cleaner. There was like this, a weird like episode where I was drinking like aluminum cleaner, <laughs> some weird thing, and like and that would uh, you know bring about some some pretty uh, disturbing incidents.
0: Tell about. Uh going to your HIV positive drug dealer's house when he didn't answer his phone?
1: I had this drug dealer, he lived very close by. I had him in my phone as his first name and then everything, like as a a pseudo last name, because I got everything. And uh, so I would go over to everything's house um, if he didn't answer my call. I would just be like, well, he lives close, and so if he doesn't pick up, we'll just go over there and show up. Sometimes I would show up and, uh, you know, he'd be there and, you know, sell me my drugs. And uh, sometimes I would show up and um, the door would be locked and he'd be like, you know. And then there were some times where I'd show up and the door would be unlocked, but he would be, like, passed out because he was very much a a drug user as well as a, a dealer. And he would inject cocaine, which, like, for some reason means that with his syringe, he squirted his blood. all You could see blood squirted over the walls, even on the ceiling. I guess there's just some component to injecting cocaine that uh, like leads you to squirt your own blood all over the place. But this one time when I showed up and uh, he was in his bedroom, passed out, he wasn't dead. But there was, I couldn't wake him up, and I was like, "Hey, wake up, wake up!" And it just, I just finally reached a point where I came even stop trying to wake him up. But I'm in his house, and over at the table where he would weigh out all of his drugs, there was, a, you know, a very noticeable residue of cocaine. That you know, just from the volume of cocaine that had been over through this table, it was just there was a residue of it. And so I went over to the table. Uh, to scrape up a pile of cocaine to snort it. But as I had sat down looking at it, there was, of course, blood <laughs> had been squirted. Like there were like, you could see like the little tiny little blood, like blood splatter, you know, on the, the residue. And this is how just desperate and pathetic my my addiction was that I sat there, like knowingly scraping up this tainted, like blood cocaine, and uh, I just I sat there and snorted it, you know, which is so f***ed up. I snorted the blood of an intravenous drug user. Um, I can't f*** <laughs> like that's the extent. What was <laughs> you know? your
0: reaction when you found out he was HIV positive?
1: I, at that point, I had already been through, uh, you know, I'd had the HIV tests so many times over and over, and it's like all these years later, And uh, I just don't have it. Like fortunately, that when blood dries, or when it's, you know, the AIDS doesn't live for very long.
0: Explain why you used to like to get high to the point of hearing voices.
1: Um, Well, because it was cool. (laughs) Yeah, hearing voices was awesome. To me, they were like otherworldly like entities that were very real, that uh, only I was privy to communication with. And it's interesting that whether it's with meth, or in my case with nitrous oxide and cocaine, like um, I think that psychosis, which is characterized by, uh, by audio hallucinations, hearing voices, like various hallucinations, like seems to be from what I understand, like fairly uniform. Across the board, it's like. So I have the theory that if you ingest enough drugs, that what you do is uh, essentially erode, like the barriers between, uh, you know, like other other dimensions and stuff.
0: What would the voices say?
1: There are like nice things that some voices would say and there were like mean things so i would categorize them as as angels and demons
0: and what were the angels and demons Uh, whether there there were there
1: were angels there were demons and then there were tricksters very distinct categories the tricksters would just put on shows and all of a sudden like my apartment like the whole place would just have like lights just like going off like lights that were never there and uh like the curtains would be opening and closing, like, you know, on their own, like where meanwhile there's like barriers that it's not possible that that can happen. I had this skateboard with a, a globe that was drilled to it. The base of the globe was drilled to the skateboard and then the skateboard was drilled to the wall above the door to the apartment. And so it's this you know globe that's coming out like this. And I, I was looking at it at one point and the, uh, like the liquid terminator kind of deal, like like uh, the globe, my face came pushing out like, like the liquid terminator and it's my face and then the globe starts like headbanging, like it was me up there headbanging. There was another time when I was uh, sitting in this big swiveling uh, chair and the whole thing just straight went up in flames with me sitting in it, like full fire. I was surrounded. The whole chair was completely on fire and I wasn't being burned by it. It was just like, wow, you know, and it was to me like it was uh, like legit, like trickster spirits that were just like just entertaining me, you know, and ultimately like I suppose I would now categorize them as demons. Because they made me want so much to keep these experiences happening. And so that just drove the addiction and, and I just consumed more and more and more.
0: And what were the angels doing?
1: They were uh, expressing concern for me that, uh, that, I, that they wanted me to not destroy myself. And uh, How
0: would they do that?
1: They would plead with me to, um, to, uh, to, they would say that we're worried about you. You know, like we want you to not die and and such, I would hallucinate essentially interventions. At one point, all these like, people, there's regular for people to be walking around my apartment that were never physically there. They were like purely, you know, I was hallucinating and it was like very real too. And uh, at one point I was sitting there in that same chair that went up in flames and uh, I had all this cocaine and all this nitrous oxide and I was you know, just like days into it. And um, I leaned over to do like uh, another line of cocaine and I just thought, you know, like I'm killing myself. Like, you know, like there's no longevity in what I'm doing. Like this is just full blown self-destruction at this point, you know, like I'm dying. And I remember thinking like in that moment, I thought the very precise, distinct words, I thought, I don't care if I die. And then I leaned in to do the, the line of cocaine and, All in that moment, I don't care if I die, and I leaned forward, and that same chair, like, like, it was like it turned into a mechanical bull, you know, like some, like, super strong man was just, like, you know, and the message to me was, like, so crystal clear, And, and it was just, like, think again, like, stop, like, no, like, not okay, you know, it is not okay for you to think, I don't care if you die, you need to care that you don't die, you know, like, uh... Now, and I'm super clear as well that if there was a, like a surveillance camera inside the apartment, like now, you know, this was purely my own, right. you know, like uh, it was a tactile hallucination, but it was full body and that. Now, when I got to rehab, I should say, because there's, there's, there's another one that was uh, impactful. Um, I, had, I had a shoe sponsor at that time. And this whole wall of the apartment had vertical shelves and horizontal shelves, so there were cubby holes. And in every single cubby hole was a different pair of shoes, mm-hmm. you know, from the same company. It was like a whole wall display. And uh, one night, as uh, you know, I'd say the angels took over, and I was, you know, being intervened upon. There was there was a like a twenty-four pack of Budweiser that was just moving around the floor, like indicating that it was like a camera like reporting what I was up to and like all of these like inanimate objects were somehow telling me to like throw away the drugs like you know enough is enough this is it like the entire wall of shoes like were like impatiently tapping their toes for me to throw away the f- drugs and stop killing myself yeah. like, all right you know the whole thing f- Wall of shoes were just sitting there, impatiently tapping their toes. And uh, then when I got to rehab, and when they're all talking about, you need to have a higher power and like spirituality, you know, like just to get sober. Like this is described as like a prerequisite. And uh, I determined that whatever made that chair spin and those shoes tap would be what I prayed to when, uh, you know, when when. I need to turn to my higher power. Uh, and I still, like, that has not changed, like, not one tiny little bit. What do you mean? Like, whatever made that chair spin. Was, like, like, here I am, uh, you know, well over 10 years later, and I'm telling you, that chair spun, <laughs> those shoes tapped. Like, that's uh, a fact. And, and like, um, you know, that experience was a big deal. I mean, I wasn't ready at the time. You know, I didn't, like, turn around and, like, you know, get healthy. Right. But that, like, planted a seed that, that I, like, lean into, you know, like, I like, that's, some, that's something that for me to, like, that experience is something for me to grab onto. Like, you know, there's something out there that cares about me.
0: What do you know about your mom's family history?
1: As family trees go, every leaf on my mom's family tree uh, is... I think I can pretty safely say all everyone, except for my generation, like my cousins, is has uh I don't even think dead or dying even counts anymore. I think they're all dead. I think they all died from alcoholism or suicide. Yeah, like it's crazy. My dad said at one point that uh you know, given my mom's lineage that it can be said that for me to have uh, children, the odds of my child being an alcoholic are like the odds of playing Russian roulette with a completely loaded weapon. There's no skip a generation, like anywhere. It's everybody.
0: What do you remember writing in your college essay about your mom and Little League?
1: I remember, uh, it said like the eight, you know, like the, the school bell rang and you know 3 p.m. the day was over and the kid excitedly got on his bike and you know biked home where you know he'd laid out his baseball uniform you know because he was so excited about the game you know and like and it's true I, I was like I love that uniform whatever it was if it was a baseball uniform a football uniform that thing was like like important you know yeah. and a, and a, a game was important and would
0: wear it when you didn't even have to uh-huh, yeah. for sure Yeah,
1: I was, like, uncomfortable in my own skin, and so, like, there was something about wearing, like, that baseball uniform that made me, like, amount to more than, like, me just on my own, you know, like, so, uh, it was a big deal, and, um, I showed up all excited, and I was in third grade, I was eight years old, and, and, uh, and dad was on a business trip, and mom was passed out in bed, and, um, and I tried. to said, "Mom, Mom, you know, like it's time to go to the game. You know, like need her to drive me to the game." And uh, she, like, she just wasn't having it. You know, she was all like super drunk and just said flat out no. And and I couldn't accept that. And uh, so I went over to the neighbor's house and um, I asked uh, the lady that lived, in, you know, next door across the street, if she would drive me to the game, and she did.
0: How often would she? Drink to the point of being unable to function
1: um, She was a binge drinker, and so there was um, episodes that would go on like when she started drinking, like it was like a relapse, and that meant that she would from that point forward stay drunk for, for days or even weeks on end, um, mostly coinciding with dad's business trips so um
0: why coinciding with his business trips? If dad was
1: around, like that wasn't gonna fly. Mm-hmm. But when dad was not around, so mom would be trying to pull it together for when dad got back, like with varying degrees of difficulty.
0: So when the binge drinking was going on for days or weeks on end, how did that impact you in terms of going to school or eating dinner? Going
1: to school like, at times became optional, uh, particularly in high school. Um, like uh, there was a lot of freedom, you know, um, and and I kind of welcomed it, but, uh, and man, it's really like, again, I was never like mad at my mom, and I, and I recognized fully that she was, just, she was just sick, you know, like, you know, I get it, but like the extent of her sickness is, uh, is pretty crazy, and here, here I'm just going to go ahead and, and say this, um, but when I was nine years old, mom announced to the family that she was dying of, uh, lymph node cancer. And, um, and it wasn't true. This was, uh, just to have an excuse to not get out of bed and stay drunk, which is like the most f-ed up thing.
0: To, to what extent did she allow you to do drugs and alcohol?
1: It was. It would vary. You know, that was kind of a sliding scale. Uh, you know, there, there were at least one or two times when, um, like, she would smoke a joint with me. But you know, that just meant that uh, she was really drunk, and I was. I felt awful about. Uh, even even then, I like, got. Uh, I felt awful about that.
0: Oh, between your mom and then, your condition starting to progress. How much do you think your dad was in denial?
1: Oh God, he was intense. You know, like dad, it was so obvious what was going on with mom, and um, and and even with me. And dad just had this ability to 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 believe that you know to just deny it. Yeah, denial. His rose-colored glasses.
0: Until you guys are you and your dad were visiting colleges, and then you came back from Correct. visiting college, and that was right. her condition was like
1: right. That was end uh, of the line. yeah, that was that was it, uh-huh. Yeah, we were gone for like a week, and we came home, and uh, it was everything was it was another level, yeah, and that was when Dad So came out of here you know, and broke the news that he had already been with another woman and that now he was going to move in with her. And I I never, I think dad could have handled that, uh, you know, in a better way. But um, at the same time, I never was mad at him, nor did I fault him because the fact was that mom's alcoholism made that marriage impossible to continue. You know, I just, like, Dad's not a bad guy because that happened. I mean, the sequence of events could have been cleaner. But again, like, there was no way around that being the case. Like, they weren't going to stay together that way.
0: You send a 2008 email sure. to your right. friends that they viewed as suggesting possible like, suicide. Um, how I, did they I respond? Prom-
1: I, I said, I said uh, this is how I scheduled my own intervention. I said, said that. Um, I've been evicted, I've only got like, you know, gotta get out of the apartment, but before I get out of here, I wanna ride a motorcycle through the living room and jump out onto the roof of the building next door. And, uh, you know, I don't wanna jump out of my bedroom window and land on the sidewalk, but I'd like to land in a hot tub. You know, I'd settle for cardboard boxes, but uh, Knoxville, get over here with the crew and bring, bring me a hot tub or cardboard boxes. And if you don't, I'm gonna jump anyway, just to find out how many bones get broken when when I land on concrete from 25 feet up in the air. Like, uh, I'm ready to die. Was how I ended that email. And and now this email that I sent was to like 200 of the most influential people who had the misfortune of me getting a hold of their contact info. And uh, when I proposed that Knox will come over and bring a hot tub or, you know, the rest of it, he had already been in contact with Dr. Drew and, um, you know, various people to organize, you know, this intervention.
0: What happened when you actually got to the hospital?
1: I was like spitting on people, as I recall. Uh, I wanted to smoke a cigarette and I was screaming and yelling and and, uh, I tried to throw some. chair or something, like I am like throwing a temper tantrum and just being like generally unlovely. And then um, they uh, jammed a, a needle in my butt cheek and then I took a nap. <laughs> uh, you know, and I'm knocked out and then i would, like, you know when I wake up from my nap, I'm in the part of the hospital where like the doors just don't open and I'm like, I can't get, I'm locked up. Like, it was a cross between a, a hospital and a jail. You know, it was like a pretty intense situation. And um, being in that situation, like on the first day, I had like, you know, this internal dialogue where I was kind of calculating like how to handle, like, how am I going to, I want to get the out of here, you know? But because my behavior had been so like spectacular, they changed my status to what's called 5250, which is a two week hold. And um, I think it was like maybe the fourth day, this guy, another patient who, he said that he was a heroin addict, he gives me this book about alcoholism. But I don't want to read this book because, like, there's no helping me, (laughs) you know? Like, I'm like, there's no hope for me, you know? But then, if it was that night, if it was the next night, I don't know, but uh, I'm just laying in, you know, and I can't sleep, and I'm bored, and there's nothing else better to do, and here's this book, and I just picked it up and started reading the book, and as I read it, like particularly in the beginning, there's this sort of like, you know, like general like assessment of alcoholism that they were describing, that the more hopeless you are, the better, you know, which makes sense, like, like as I look at it now, because if part of you thinks like, oh, like no, there's hope for me, I can manage it, then you're not a candidate for recovery, you know, <laughs> recovery starts with an admission of complete defeat. You know, we admitted that we got our ass kicked and we surrendered. You know, and so what I didn't even realize is that my core belief that I was past the point of help, that I was a lost cause, a write-off, actually made me like a prime candidate. And so it's this paradox that, you know, I'm just kind of fascinated with, but recovery begins by finding hope in hopelessness.
0: Why after a hundred days sober, have you said before that was the closest you'd ever been to actually killing yourself?
1: After I got sober, I would say that it took probably about that long, like three months for, for the fog to clear enough for me to see like the reality of like what I had become, you know, and like the, I just judged myself as like, Fuck, I, I hate myself. There was one time in particular where I was at, uh, you know, one of our sober people things, and um, and I spoke up and said, like, all of the work that I'm putting into, you know, my recovery, I feel like what's coming out of this work is self hatred. You know, as I look at, like the, you know, my inventory, as I like, uh, you know. Like go through this this stuff that I have to go through. I don't like what I see. You know, I've, I'm I'm ashamed. I'm like I feel guilty. I feel uh, you know I feel like I hate myself, and uh, I feel like I, I feel like I want to blow my brains out. And um, this uh, this thing that I was at was located on, on a hospital grounds, and so when when uh, when it was over, the, the people. Walked me across the hospital grounds and, and uh, checked me into, um, I checked myself into the, the psychiatric unit.
0: Why did you end up staying in sober living for two years?
1: I remember a counselor saying some statistic that like 95% of all alcoholics died um, drunk of causes related directly to alcoholism. Is like the general statistic. Like, like only about 5% of alcoholics achieve long-term sobriety. And uh, I said to Dr. Drew, "Hey, man, like I know the odds are not in my f-ing favor, and here I'm all in, and I don't want to waste my time, you know. And so, however long you recommend that I stay in this rehab, I want to stay significantly longer, so that I can give myself a better chance of not wasting my." F-ing time doing this Mm -hmm. and that is just a a really crazy thing to do because it's essentially handing over a blank check Mm -hmm. and this place was like i don't know how much that had cost me i think it might have been like something in the
0: like 300
1: grand you know ballpark yeah but but dr drew and bless his heart he said uh that's great that you're so committed But the fact is, I don't recommend that you stay in this rehab for more than 30 days. I think that would be pointless. But if you are serious about giving yourself an advantage, then what I recommend you doing is going from rehab into a sober living. And that makes all the sense in the world. And like today, I'm such a big fan of sober. Sober living saved my life, is what I think. Because without it, there would have been so many... Moment where it's just like, like in the book, it describes, you know, like, like uh, that moment of subtle insanity, where just all of a sudden, we just can't think of a reason not to take a drink. Yeah. That's what alcoholism is. And then there's no way around it, you're going to have that moment. And that's why it's so important for sober people to stay together, because in a group, not all of us have that moment at the same time. Yeah. So we protect each other from that moment. And without being uh, in that safe environment of the sober living on my own with that moment of subtle insanity, like I'd be a goner. And on top of that with no discipline whatsoever, such entitlement issues, you know, like just such a child. And like I needed the the safety and the structure and the discipline.
0: Um, Ryan Dunn. Mm -hmm. Why do you think his death really hit home with you?
1: Uh, I mean, I think it hit all of us. I don't know that it hit me, um, you know, like more than than any of the other guys. But, um, yeah, he was just an alcoholic, man. And that was like one of the last things he said to me. I remember because we did, uh, the last time I saw Don before he died, we taped this show with Guy Fieri, Minute to Win It. And you know, it's to raise money for charity, and you do these like little challenges, and they involve like dexterity and like balancing like dice on a, you're know, like whatever like little things. Mm-hmm. And Don like had the shakes, you know, he, like in the in the rehearsal, and like before uh, we taped the show, like he had to go, you know, have a, have a couple drinks. He even said, "I'm like, dude, like what the," f-? and he's like, "Dude, I just." I just gotta not shake, you know, like, uh, like I'm, I'm an alcoholic. So, that being the last time I saw him, you know, and spoke to him. And then the next time, you know, like I hear he
0: died. how did you find out?
1: Oh God. It, it was, uh, my phone rang at f- f- like five or six in the morning. And I woke up and it was someone from TMZ Asking for a comment about Ryan Dunn's death,
0: Mm.
1: which sucks, you know, I mean, I can't fault that person because they had my number. It was their job to, you know, to do that. It was, uh, I'm not mad at them, you know, for that, but uh, I I was at the time. I thought that was pretty disgusting.
0: What what was your reaction?
1: Um... If I'm completely honest, I was like uh, a selfish one's like f- like uh, like that means you know like what, what are we going to do now, you know? Like, How are we going to turn around? Like it, it was um, considerably less than a year since we had the huge success with Jackass 3D. You know, and I think that if I'm honest, my first thought, I was like I went and died honest, man. You know, like that f- sucks us. You know, and that's like pretty pathetic and sad that uh you know, that that's my first thing, but I remember it was, you know. And um and the rest is is it's just sad, man, you know. It's 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 just really sad.
0: How'd you cope with it? I think
1: death in general, like uh, I I can kinda kinda handle it. Without like, you know, falling apart. I think uh, like my mom. That was like super difficult, and um, my mom suffered because in in 1998, my mom had uh, an aneurysm, and you know, like her brain bleeding, and um, she survived it, which is I think rather rare, but she survived it with terrible mental and physical disability. And on top of that, she got bed sores, which is like the worst thing that uh, I think can happen to a person just about. And she survived for five years in total pain and like like just cried in pain a lot of the time. you know, like really? And like to hear my mom like crying like so much and you know, and just the suffering, it um just it, it traumatized me in, in in such a terrible way, um and like you know with the, the like the idea of a higher power and God like I mean I um really hated any idea of a God that could allow that to happen to my mom, you know. But since I got sober and with uh, You know, like just this sort of pursuit of, uh, you know, spirituality and kind of thinking about like what's it all about, you know, like that's kind of the thing. And um, I just view it like as uh, there's this saying, we're all eyes in the same head, you know, like um, all of creation is an exercise in God experiencing itself. So, like viewed it that way, it's not like God was over here and allowed that to happen to my mom, who was over here, and they were separate. Like, no, like, like mom was just like we all are, an exercise in experience for God, and so they're very much together and very much the same. And uh, so that, like, kind of really helps me with that. So I don't know. I think I've just kind of come to terms with uh, with that a little bit better. Like, I don't, I don't think of, I, I think of Ryan Dunn passing, and I think it's like, it's really sad. You know, that really, if you ask me, there's really think anybody that would disagree that he died of alcoholism. You know, um, and you don't have to do that. Like, uh, I, I've learned that, you know, that there's a solution. So uh, it's it's sad, and, and I miss him, and I know all of my buddies miss him.
0: I want to take you back to when you were growing up. Um, I think you, uh, think you moved seven times around the world by the time you were 14. Um, name all the places you lived when you were growing uh, up. I
1: grew up in five different countries. I was born in England, moved to Brazil when I was six months old, spoke my first words in Portuguese, um, moved to Venezuela, when I was, I think, two. And I, I spoke fluent Spanish in nursery school. I moved to Connecticut when I was four. And then uh, when I was six years old, moved to Miami. And then when I was nine years old, moved to England. When I was 12 years old, moved to Canada. When I was 13, I moved to, back to England. And I stayed in England through all four years of high school. Um, until I graduated high school when I was 18.
0: The pros and cons of moving around like that would be what?
1: I, I, every time I found out we were going to move, I was like psyched about it. Because I was like, oh, well this next time I'm going to be cool. <laughs> you know, like it was always like a chance for me to start over because I was really quick to rub people the wrong way, like all through my childhood. and. uh like, I wanted, like, attention, and I wanted approval and praise, but, like, I went all the wrong ways about trying to get that.
0: How, how well, if all, do you remember uh, the report card from your sixth-grade oh, homeroom teacher?
1: It was the sixth-grade report card, and my homeroom teacher, Alice Iacuessa, wrote, Steve, uh, like, desperately craves the uh, approval... You know, the the attention, approval, you know, uh, praise, you know, of his peers and but everything he does, you know, in seeking that brings about the opposite result. And that uh, couldn't be more accurate. And the fact of how true that is uh, was, was, you know, it it appears to me.
0: So your dad, how much did he work? When you were growing up?
1: Oh yeah, I mean, like I think if anything was it was damaging, and this isn't like an attack or a judgment on my dad, but um, I think that the the lack of consistency with the uh, the parenting, you know, when dad was around, there was like dad would try to like compensate for all the time he wasn't there by being extra like stern and you know disciplinarian when he was there, and so all that like really created was just like inconsistency, you know, like, oh, like what is it, you know? And same thing with mom's drinking and stuff. So um, I either had like a super strict like dad that I was kind of scared of, or like I had just like, it was like Pippi Longstocking, you know?
0: So it was a lunch that you had with him at Ruby Tuesdays before the two of you drove to Jackson Memorial to see your mom after her aneurysm. What about that lunch was so impactful?
1: Yeah, when mom's aneurysm happened and you know, we all congregated in Florida, uh, we took a break from the hospital to go get this, this meal. At that point, I had been through clown college, which dad just didn't understand, he didn't approve of, he just didn't support. And, and mom came to my clown college graduation, but dad did not. Um, which is no big deal. You know, but dad was like not on board with what I was trying to do with the video camera and I'm going to be a stuntman business.
0: And I love
1: this so much. This is so like special to me and I'm so grateful for it because dad initiated this conversation at that time and he said, uh, hey, I want to tell you something. I really feel I've done a disservice to you by... uh, not supporting you in this career that you've clearly committed yourself to. And it's not what I would choose for you, but I didn't choose what my dad would have chosen for me. And he said, just like my dad told me, he said, that, uh, you know, I, I want to tell you that, uh, you know, I regret not supporting you and I pledge to support you. And that just, like, it was a big deal, you know? He said, you're not doing what I want. <laughs>
0: How, but, how, did, how did hearing that impact you?
1: Like it put wind in my sails, you know. And I remember, uh, like, there was this show on TV called Real TV, where it was kind of like, uh, you know, home, it was it was home videos. And on the the commercial, they said, if you have any video footage that you think that you know we might want to see, like, uh, call this number and. And I called up the number. And I was like, I don't even have footage that you might want. I have footage that you desperately need. You know, and, and, um, and so I sent them the, the video and they, and they called me back and they said, yeah, we really like uh, the one where you're on the, the roof of the three-story building and you set yourself on fire and do the simultaneous fire-breathing front flip off of the roof. And, uh, and we'll pay you... Five hundred dollars for exclusive rights to it, and I'm like, "Well, what does that mean?" And they would, they said, "Well, that that means that we own it, and that you can't, you know, do anything with it." And I'm like, "Wait, like, I can't, I can't do it." And I'm like, "I'm thinking that sounds awful, right?" And so I kind of went into a panic because I wanted to be on real TV, <laughs> you know, like I want to be on real TV, but uh, but I don't want, you know, and so I called dad, you know, and I couldn't have done that before. Now Dad's on my team, he's in my corner. Yeah. And I called Dad, I said, Dad, you're la, 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 you know, 500 Break Exclusives, and Dad says, well, calm down. You know, mellow out, calm down. He said, this is so simple. He said, you need to decide what's a deal breaker and stick to it. He says, what I hear you saying, it sounds like the exclusivity is a deal breaker. So why don't you... Uh, Draw that line, stick to it. Tell them that you're not going to give them exclusivity, and ask for a thousand. So I called back and I said, non-exclusive, and I need a thousand. And they said, cool. <laughs> and so, like from that first, you know, that was like the first like business thing. And Dad and I did it together. He's been in the loop on, on everything. I mean, increasingly less so, but uh, but but he still has a, a major presence in all of my affairs. You know, and and I love that. Thank you very much. (laughs) Yeah, man. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger. And visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. Also, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash Graham Bensinger for hours of extra content. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.